If you're just doing time-based fasting, you don't really know what's going on in your body unless you're measuring. The important thing to understand about urinated tests, because they're being removed and then excreted in the urine, by definition, those are unused ketones. And the high resolution of our device allows you to say, I have a sense now, a very precise idea of the effect of that decision on my metabolism. You can take as many measurements as you want during the day. Part of what happens during exercise is you're actually just using the ketones that are in your body. Now, when we did the multiple daily measurements, we found that people's ketones actually vary a lot. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, this episode, I learned so much. I'm kind of in shock about how much I learned. If you are at all interested in ketosis, ketones, understanding what's happening when all of that goes down, this is the episode for you. I cannot even describe how much I learned and I'm super excited to hear what everybody thinks. You will definitely want to check out the transcript for this episode because we dive deep into a lot of things. That will be at the show notes. The show notes are at melanieavalon.com slash ketones. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Check out the pinned post at the top of the group and just comment something that you learned from this episode, something that resonated with you to enter to win something I love. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the topic that we are about to dive deep into. It's a topic which is, I was thinking about this, probably one of the most popular topics in the biohacking sphere. So it's kind of a shocker that I haven't had an episode yet dedicated to it. But I think this is going to be the episode for it. I'm very excited because we're going to go into the science. We're going to go into how you can make it applicable and practical in your own life. So I am here with Trey Suntrup. He is with a company called Biosense and they make a ketone breath analyzer. So there it is, the teaser. Although I guess if you saw the title of this episode, you probably already know what it's about. But a little bit about Trey. So he is a researcher and a product leader. He has over 13 years of experience developing novel device technologies in academic and industrial settings. He holds a PhD in physics and electrical engineering from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And like I said, he does work with the company Biosense and they have a new breath analyzer device to, of course, analyze ketones. And one of the reasons I'm really, really looking forward to this episode and the conversation that we're about to have is there's a lot of questions and suspicions and different ideas out there about measuring ketones, about the ketogenic state, about what is the best way to go about that, what is practical, what is applicable, what does it even mean? I think Trey can hopefully speak to a lot of that. So Trey, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Melanie. So before we jump in, we were talking a little bit before the call about your background and everything. I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about your background and what brought you to where you are right now with Biosense, just what's your history there? 
Sure. So I'm trained as a physical scientist and engineer. So as you mentioned, my PhD is in physics. And I spent a lot of time in my academic career looking at devices and kind of how different devices, the physics of those devices operate. So I I did some product work up in Silicon Valley after graduate school, but I really kind of felt like I wasn't connecting to the cause as much as I wanted to. And what I mean by that is I didn't draw a straight line between the work that I was doing and benefit to real people. So I had this idea, you know, how do I break into the medical tech and the healthcare space? And this opportunity came up in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, at Washington University here in the medical school. They had a postdoctoral fellowship there that was really interesting. It was NIH funded. It was super open-ended. And I got to work in the medical school doing both clinical research and also helping medical school faculty transition some of their laboratory inventions into commercial technologies. So really kind of at the at the boundary between academia and industry, which I've always found that transition totally fascinating. So as part of that work, I, I stumbled upon this technology working with a, an investor here in St. Louis, this company, Readout Health, who had developed Biosense. And, you know, Kind of a long story short, I just ended up doing some work for the investor on behalf of the investor on the company, and then they hired me at the end of that work. So I've been with the company here for about 15 months, and I'm loving it. It's such a fun ride. I love that so much. And actually, that's a really similar story because I actually recently on the podcast had another, well, he wasn't even ever really a scientist, but entrepreneur in this whole breath analyzing device. And that was actually the Lumen device, which does not measure ketones. We can circle back around to maybe how that compares to Biosense and a little bit later in this conversation. But his story was actually really similar as far as like the focus was on taking some science from some trials and some studies and then making it you know, actually making it really practical for the user and the focus on that whole aspect. And I think there's just so much benefit to that because we, you know, we can, we can sit and we can, we can read studies all day about ketosis. We can read studies all day about ketones, all these things, but it's, it's really bringing the applicable science into your hands and experiencing it for you that I just think is so valuable. So I'm really really excited to discuss all of this. I guess before we go into the actual science and studies, for listeners who aren't familiar, even though I feel like most listeners will be pretty familiar, but would you like to give listeners just a brief overview about what the ketogenic state or ketosis actually is in the body? Sure, no problem. So normally, you know, there's this thing called the standard American diet that I think kind of everybody's pretty familiar with. It's generally understood to be high carbohydrate, high, high calorie, right? And when you're eating a diet like that, your body is really deriving its energy from glucose and from those carbohydrates. And that's really the primary fuel source for your body. And actually, whenever, you know, excess glucose is available, that's what your body is going to use for energy. The state of ketosis actually occurs when your body switches from primarily burning carbohydrates to primarily burning fat. And this could either be dietary fat in the case of the ketogenic diet, if you're eating a low-carb, high-fat diet, or it could be your own internal fat stores if you're fasting or you're doing deep caloric restriction. 
So there's a bunch of benefits, you know, that you could imagine, and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, related to anti-inflammatory effects, weight loss, improvement of a bunch of different metabolic markers, improvement in diabetes, you know, the list goes on. Quick question to that. So the fat burning state versus the ketogenic state when you're burning these ketones, when does that switch happen and does it vary by the individual? So like, for example, could you be in a fat burning mode and actually never start to generate ketones? If you're in a fat burning mode, are you, you know, automatically generating ketones? Like when does the actual ketone generating process occur? So that's actually a great question. And it's one that I really glossed over and I shouldn't have. So when you switch off of this primarily glucose burning state, you switch into a state where you're burning both fatty acids and ketones for energy. So it's actually both that are occurring at the same time. Part of the reason why your body produces ketones instead of just burning fatty acids is that your brain is not able to use fatty acids for metabolism. So your brain can either use glucose if it's available, or it can use ketones as a metabolic substrate. So your body came up with this trick where when it starts to metabolize fat in the liver, the liver actually releases these ketone bodies, which are an additional metabolic substrate for your body. Okay, I'm actually having some epiphanies now. I don't know if you guys have found this in your studies or your work. So the actual ketone generating metabolism process, because you, you just said that you know the, the brain can either run on glucose or ketones, but it can't run off of fatty acids. So is it possible that some people never really, you know, tap into a truly ketogenic state? you know, for whatever reason that might be, maybe that their dietary macros, maybe they're, you know, not fasting long enough, not going low carb quite enough. So they're kind of in this nebulous state where they, you know, never really start that ketone process while still maybe being lower carb. So they get like brain fog. And because so many people say that they never seem to experience that like ketogenic state, no matter how much they try. I'm just wondering if it's possible that if you're not exactly doing the macros that you need to be doing or doing the fasting that you need to be doing, you could think that you're getting into ketosis, but you're not. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a great question. I totally understand what you mean. So I do think kind of on that transition point between the glucose burning and the fat and the ketone state, there's kind of this fuzzy area where your glucose may drop, but you haven't ramped up the ketone production yet. And to your point, you know, if your brain starts to, to not have enough energy in the form of, you know, you don't have the glucose, but you don't have the ketones yet, then that could contribute to some of that brain fog that you're talking about. The other reasons have to do with, you know, when you restrict carbohydrates, your electrolytes kind of get thrown out of whack uh, temporarily. So a lot of people, when they do fast, they're supplementing with, you know, sodium is the big one, just to make sure that your electrolyte compositions stay in line. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, that in-between state, you know, I'm I'm not quite burning glucose. My glucose is dropping, but I haven't switched over to the ketone metabolism. Definitely people struggle in that transition. This is so fascinating. I'm just wondering, like, if there could be a point where people maybe are just perpetually in this state and never quite switching over. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I've had that experience myself and our founder... And I have had this conversation before, you know, when measuring ketones with our own device, we've got a group who, who loves to experiment. And so we're always trying these, these little experiments and then measuring our ketones. And I'm sure we'll talk about the device later. But the nice thing is you can take 
you know, as many measurements as you want during the day. So you can really do these fun experiments where you're just tracking yourself every hour, you know, for example, and really getting a sense of what's happening. And something we both noticed is that when we, you know, we have our low numbers, our low ketone numbers, and then we have our high ketone numbers. And then there are these kind of in-between numbers. And we always feel the worse in that in-between state. You know, both of us had kind of arrived at that independently. And one day we were having a conversation and we were like, oh, me too. You know, it's really that that transition that can be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm getting so excited by all of this just by, you know, the the potential and the, the benefit that a person could have by having the ability to measure their ketones for everything that we just discussed. A lot of follow up questions to that, but I want to get a little bit more clarity for listeners about the different type of ketones and how they're generated and all of that so they can, you know, get a, a good sense of what is going on. So, because I know there's like three different type of ketones, I believe. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about the different types and where they're found, be it the urine, the blood, or the breath? Sure, no problem. So, ketones are produced in your liver. And the first ketone to kind of pop out of that process is called acetoacetate. So acetoacetate, like I said, is first ketone to form in your liver, that can be converted via enzymes into beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the second ketone. So both of those ketones, after they're produced in the liver, are then released into the bloodstream. So they're both circulating in your bloodstream. The the BHB, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, is the molecule that is measured in a blood test. So if any of your listeners are familiar, you know, you've got these finger, prick, and test strip systems. You know, they're similar to blood glucose systems. In fact, most of those meters are both blood glucose meters and blood ketone meters. So you get a drop of blood, you, you know, you hold it up to the test strip and, you know, a reaction takes place and it tells you what your, your blood ketone values are. So that is a, a beta-hydroxybutyrate, you know, we shorten it to BHB because that's a bit of a mouthful, a BHB-sensitive a test. The acetoacetate that is circulating in your blood along with the BHB is actually unstable. It's chemically unstable. So what happens is that just spontaneously, that acetoacetate can degrade into acetone. And acetone is the third ketone. So because acetone is so small and it's volatile, it's a small molecule and it's volatile, it can actually diffuse into the airways of the lungs and then be exhaled in the breath. So breath tests are really sensitive to the acetone. The acetoacetate that doesn't degrade into acetone, it just hasn't happened yet. Like I said, the the reaction is spontaneous. So you can kind of think of it as random. So some of that acetoacetate is not going to turn into acetone. That can be filtered by your kidneys and then excreted in your urine. And the urinary test strips are sensitive to that excreted acetoacetate. Okay. So I want to I want to go through this and make sure I'm understanding and get some clarification. Yeah, sorry. That was a lot of information. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, no, it's good. I just want to make sure I'm on the same page cuz I actually have some questions about what you just said versus the way I was thinking it quote went down. So, when you enter the ketogenic state, is acetoacetate like the first thing that's created is that converted into either acetone or BHB or is BHB created independent of acetoacetate? Both the BHB and the acetone 
are initially derived from the acetoacetate. So the way I kind of think of it is that acetoacetate is like the parent ketone, and then it gives birth to these other two. That's kind of my silly analogy. Okay, I love that. So I'm going to keep going on this a little bit longer because I've been wanting to understand this for so long. So this is like a lesson for me. So we create acetoacetate, the parent ketone, and then you said it's unstable. Is that the reason that it becomes acetone or BHB or does only the unstable form become acetone? Yeah, so I should I should clear something up here. So the conversion between acetoacetate and BHB only takes place within the cells. So that does not take place in the bloodstream. I should have mentioned that. So because that's enzymatic, there's an enzyme that has to catalyze that reaction. That enzyme is only found inside the cells. So the, and this is actually a point of confusion that I had for a long time that once I understood cleared a lot of things up for me. So, you know, once the conversion BH, or acetoacetate to BHB happens, and both of those are released into the bloodstream, while they're circulating in the bloodstream, the only thing that happens there is that the acetoacetate becomes acetone. Okay, I'm going to go through it again. So when you say in the cells, I'm assuming that includes liver cells? Correct. Yeah, correct. So liver cells and peripheral cells, because the other part of this that we, and maybe this will help, the other part of this that we didn't talk about is that, you know, these ketones are circulating in the blood. Eventually, they're taken up by the peripheral cells that are actually trying to use them for energy, right? So let's say, you know, you have some muscle cells or you have some brain cells. We'll then take the ketones out of the bloodstream and then use those for metabolism in a similar or analogous way to the way that it would use glucose, but a little different. Starting at the liver again. So acetoacetate is in the liver, in the liver cells, and then it can be converted into BHB as well. And acetoacetate and BHB from the liver cells can enter the bloodstream. Stop me if I get wrong at, at any point. No, you're good so far. Okay, okay. So then we have acetoacetate and BHB floating around in the bloodstream. Other cells can directly take up BHB or they could take up the acetoacetate as well and convert it into BHB. And then in addition, the acetoacetate in the bloodstream could degrade into acetone. Yep, all of that is great. So just one more addition there is aceto once in the peripheral cells, so let's say your muscle cells, the BHB that's going to be used for metabolism then has to reconvert itself into acetoacetate inside the peripheral cells because acetoacetate is actually the thing that's directly metabolized. So th that's that's actually the ketone that your body uses that enters you know the cycle to to produce energy to produce ATP. So if there is BHB, let's say in your muscle cell, it has to convert first into acetoacetate inside the cell again before it can be used for metabolism. So sometimes does acetoacetate get converted to BHB in the liver, go into the bloodstream as BHB, get grabbed as BHB, and then convert it back into acetoacetate in the cell? Yes, that can absolutely happen. And, you know, you may, maybe your next question is why even bother? Yes. <laughs> why? Right? Because it goes in one direction in the liver and then the opposite direction in the, in the peripheral cells. And the truth is, we don't quite know. But our best guess is that because BHB is 
uh, stable in the bloodstream, that the body kind of does, well, there, there may be two reasons, but I'll talk about the first one now. It's since the BHB is stable in the blood and the acetoacetate isn't, right? Because the acetoacetate at any moment can just become acetone. And acetone is has very little metabolic utility by your body. I think it can be used a little bit, but like it's pretty much negligible from the perspective of, you know, helping your body generate energy. So you can kind of think of acetone as like not useful for the body metabolically speaking, right? So if the body converts the acetoacetate into BHB before it goes into the bloodstream, well now the BHB is safe. That's not going to degrade into anything. Right. So it's kind of a, you know, one hypothesis is that this is a preservation mechanism, actually, that your body does to make sure that it doesn't lose the ketones to this acetone degradation. So to clarify, you're saying that when BHB is taken up from the bloodstream into peripheral cells, it's actually converted back into acetoacetate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a ratio of how much of it gets converted. And, you know, we can talk about that a little bit later if you're interested, like what determines that ratio, but yes. Okay. Cause it's just so interesting because the vernacular surrounding BHB is that it is the, you know, the fuel, but it's sounding like it's actually the acetoacetate and BHB is like the stable thing it's converted into before it's used as fuel. That's exactly right. So in terms of metabolism, acetoacetate is the thing that's directly metabolized. BHB has other properties related to signaling. And, you know, I, I don't know a ton about this, to be honest, but I do know that, you know, BHB, BHB plays an important signaling role for certain anti-inflammatory pathways. So BHB has kind of ancillary benefits outside of just providing an energy substrate for metabolism. But as far as, you know, the substrate that the body is using to, to make energy, that's acetoacetate. Can I just say how much I'm enjoying this conversation? I'm learning so much right now. Okay, so with that whole understanding, I think when people first start a ketogenic diet, for example, or are interested in gauging ketosis, they often try urine urinary test trips first to measure their... I guess now I've learned they're acetoacetate, which makes sense because you were saying how when a person is, you know, starting to enter fat burning mode and a ketogenic state that acetoacetate is that, that big ketogenic currency that's being created first. And then it's, you know, then we get, we're getting BHB, acetone, <laughs> so confusing. But as far as the acetoacetate spilling over into the urine and measuring ketones with urinary strips. On a timeline for an individual, are they going to be excreting more urinary ketones when they first start a ketogenic diet? Like how revealing is measuring urine, for example, for ketones? Yeah, so I, I do think you're right. I think, you know, a lot of people do start measuring urinary ketones at the beginning of an experiment, for example, going on the ketogenic diet, because I think there's a lot of aversion to pricking your finger for a lot of people. You know, if you're not a diabetic, you're not used to it. That idea just doesn't really sit right with most people. And actually, even diabetics now, as an aside, now that continuous glucose monitors are becoming more popular, you're even starting to see a shift within the diabetic community of not wanting to prick their finger. So people, you know, understandably take a non-invasive approach and say, I'm going to test my urine. So the important thing to understand about urinary tests, there's a couple different things. 
actually to understand about them. The first is that because they're being removed from the bloodstream and then excreted in the urine, by definition, those are unused ketones, right? So I kind of think of them as like excess ketones in the sense that your body's not using them, right? Because they're coming out in your urine. So that's the first thing. The second is that for urinary test strips, they're really kind of semi-quantitative. So they really only give you a range of concentrations. So if you're trying to get an idea, like, am I, am I in ketosis yet or not? You know, they can be useful for that, but they're really not going to give you a quantitative sense of the ketone levels in your body. And then the third thing is because they're, you know, just sitting in your urine, the number that you actually see or the range, I should say, that shows up on your urinary test strip is going to depend on a couple of different factors like the level of your hydration or how long the, the urine's actually been sitting in the bladder, things like that. So there are a couple of different things that kind of make it a little bit hard to interpret. But it's it's an easier test to do and, you know, it's more pal- palatable for a lot of people than a blood test. So quick question, because a lot of people, I feel like when they are measuring urine ketones, for example, when they first start a ketogenic diet, oftentimes they'll find that at the beginning they start measuring high ketones and then it seems to go down. So would that be because what you just said, like... When they first started, they're creating a lot of acetoacetate, but they're not necessarily using all of it. And that acetoacetate is literally just (laughs) going into the urine. But then as they become more, quote, fat adapted or more metabolically efficient with ketosis, more of that acetoacetate gets converted into BHB instead of being wasted. Is that a reason that their urinary ketones might start dropping? Yeah, basically, that's basically right. So I think what happens is that your body kind of becomes better calibrated to using ketones for fuel. And what that means is it's just more efficient with its energy use. So part of that is actually like downregulating the pathways that let the acetoacetate out into your urine. You know, your body kind of realizes like, oh, I'm this is what I'm using now for energy. I better hang on to this, right? So it just stops or it decreases the amount that's actually secreted in your urine. And you asked before about the timeline for that. And I do think, you know, it depends as all things with the human body on a lot of different factors. And it's it's certainly personal, individual to individual. But a lot of people report, you know, along the lines of several weeks of, you know, being ketogenic before they start to see their urinary ketones drop. But it could be longer than that, depending on exactly, you know, what kind of diet you're following. Okay, gotcha. Me, because I haven't asked you yet about the actual trials that you did, you know, in work with creating Biosense, but maybe that comes up with all this as well. So moving beyond like the urinary test for ketones. So what determines, A, how much the liver creates BHB from acetoacetate and then that's in the blood compared to acetoacetate becoming acetone to be measured in the breath. Do those correlate? Like, is it like half and half, like (laughs) becomes half BHB, half acetone or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, and it's complicated by the fact that the answer changes depending on your overall ketone level and whether you're, you're keto adapted. So we can say a couple things for sure, which is that the ratio of BHB to acetoacetate that is released into your bloodstream is controlled by what's called the redox potential of your mitochondria. And so this is the ratio of NADH to NAD plus in your mitochondria. And because 
that's part of the reaction that converts one into the other. NAD plus NADH redox potential is really what determines the, the ratio. Is there a more beneficial side to that ratio? Like, do we want more BHB versus acetone? Not necessarily, but there is some research now to suggest optimal ratios for your redox potential. So I'm not super well-versed in that research, but there are a lot of interesting longevity studies. You know, I'm sure plenty of your listeners know much more about this than I do, but there are longevity studies out there that suggest that having certain redox potentials or certain ratios of NAD plus to NADH is beneficial for longevity. Because that ratio, you know, determines the ratio of BHB to acetoacetate, maybe you can say that there's, you know, optimal ratio of those two for health, but really it's about the redox potential of the mitochondria and those implications for health and longevity. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, 
You search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes, all the time, with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalonsCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. I feel like this is a David Sinclair question. <laughs> if, I, if I bring him back on the podcast. Yeah, there are many, many people out there that know much more than I do about this, but that's just a, a teaser. Yeah, teaser, <laughs> to-do list. I interrupted you. What were you going to say next? Oh, sure. So, but then as the, the concentrations increase, sometimes the ratio can change a little bit. And the ratio can also change if you are long-term keto adapted. You know, we've seen this as well in some of our users who, you know, are measuring, they're just like, you know, super interested biohacker types, and they're measuring their blood and their breath at the same time. And they have an idea for the ratio of their blood and their breath, and they're seeing something different. A lot of times it's because of exactly what you say, which is the ratio of BHB to acetoacetate can change as you become long-term keto adapted too. To that point, as far as the comparison between the blood and the breath and what that indicates, would that mean that it's not so much important for an individual comparing the blood to the breath as it would be looking at the breath over time compared to the blood over time. Cause I know like a big question people have is, is measuring breath accurate? Like it, for some reason there's this idea, or maybe it's for good reason. Uh, maybe you can speak to this. There's this idea that measuring blood is the quote gold standard, that it's the most stable thing to measure or the most telling thing. I'm assuming you guys have, you know, found 
perhaps some evidence to question that a little bit since you're, you have your device measuring the breath. So yeah, what is the value in measuring the breath? How does it correlate to a person's state of ketosis? What might it indicate about how their body's running on ketones? What can they learn from measuring the breath? That's another great question. So I'll answer it in steps, I think is probably the best way. So the first thing is to say that, you know, these old breath acetone devices really have earned their bad reputation. I'm sorry to say. And it's not, you know, anything against anyone who's tried to develop one. It's actually that detecting acetone in the breath is hard. This is hard to do. You know, we're talking about parts per million concentration of acetone in your breath. So you're we're pulling out one in a million you know, particles in your breath and then measuring that. So that is, that's hard to do, right? So historically, the way that breath acetone was measured was actually with these huge laboratory tools. Somebody would breathe into a bag and then they would take it to this, you know, mass spec tool and they would measure breath acetone that way because those tools are really set up to measure very low concentrations of things. So imagine that we're trying to pull kind of a faint signal out of the overall signal here. So that's the first thing to mention. The second thing is that, you know, where our device, Biosense, is really revolutionary with respect to to taking an accurate breath measurement is we're using a deep lung sampling process. So what this means is that actually the concentration of any analyte really that you would be exhaling, but in our case, it's acetone, is actually highest at the end of your breath. So... This actually makes sense if you start to think about it. If you take an, you know, an inhale of air, you know, a lot of that air is going to just sit in the middle of your lungs and not interact with your lung tissue, right? Because by the time that you exhale, it hasn't had the chance to kind of migrate over to your lungs and have an exchange with your lungs. So the first part of that exhale is mostly just the same ambient air that you inhaled in the first place, right? Unless you're like a yogi or something. Constantly doing deep, deep breathing exercises. <laughs> I, I had not thought of that, but that is that's true. Maybe that is a slightly different phenotype than what I'm thinking. <laughs> but yeah, no, 100. percent Yeah. So what our device does, and what our intellectual property and our patent is about, is it is about you know having a device that you just breathe into essentially normally, and the device just ignores that first part of your breath. So it just sits there and listens to you exhale. And then once it determines that like, okay, they're running out of air, they're getting toward the end of their breath, then the device really kicks on. A pump inside the device pulls that last part of your breath from the device mouthpiece kind of into the guts of the device and into contact with the sensor. And then the breath acetone concentration is determined by the sensor there. So it's really this end of breath sampling process that really no one else does on any other breath analyte that really enables accurate breath measurements that have this nice correlation with blood measurements that has not existed before. So when you're using the device, is there a countdown that you're supposed to follow or does it adjust to you based on however long you exhale? Yeah, so it's actually personalized to the type of exhale that you have. You know, some people have really big lungs like me, like I'm a bigger person. So I once had a chest x-ray and the you know, technician had to reshoot it because they didn't get all my lung in the x-ray and they're like, holy cow. So I just have these very big lungs, right? So my exhales are very long. Other people, you know, probably not so much. So the device has a microphone inside of it that listens to the pattern of your exhale and really just takes into account those different types of breathing patterns. Because the other thing you don't want to have to do with these devices is 
you know, all breath devices are going to have a technique to them to a degree. But what you want to do is to try to take out some of that variability so that it's not like this tiny little Goldilocks zone of, hey, you need to breathe like this, but not quite like this and a little bit more like this, right? Because for users, that's going to be frustrating if it's a complicated maneuver that you have to perform to get a measurement. And really what we're trying to do is, you know, replace an inconvenient measurement, which is a blood measurement where you have, you know, all these supplies and you have to draw blood, et cetera, with a convenient one. And, you know, if the the breath sampling process gets too complicated, then it kind of, you know, compromises that convenience. So the device is really intended, that's a long way of saying the device is really intended to account for those differences and that variability in the way that you might exhale. Some more actually quick follow-up questions while we're still talking about the acetones excreted in the breath. So how does that tend to correlate to BHB for a person? Like, does it tend to correlate or is it, you know, wildly different based on the individual? Let's talk about the historical studies first. So there's actually not a ton of historical data on this. There are a handful of studies and the total, you know, number of data points that are comparing breath acetone. Remember, we're talking about breath acetone compared to blood BHB, right? Because that's what the two things that people may be considering measuring are those two molecules. So the total number of data points comparing those two in the historical literature is something like 500 data points, which is actually very small. Most of those data are, you know, once a day measurements. So, you know, somebody is fasting, they wake up and take a blood measurement, take a breath measurement, and then don't do it again for 24 hours. So what those studies tend to find is that the correlation between breath acetone and blood BHB is somewhere in the range of like 0.6. There's an R squared of 0.6. So a perfect correlation would be one. Like a bad correlation would be like down in the 0.2s, 0.3s type of range. So you kind of have this moderate correlation between the two. So that's the historical data. Now, we conducted a clinical trial this last fall because we knew, right, exactly as you asked at the beginning, that most people are pretty distrustful of breath acetone devices up until now. So we knew, you know, we're kind of entering a space that, you know, maybe doesn't have the best reputation. We're kind of going to have to hit the ground running with some clinical data so that we can really put our money where our mouth is. So what we did in our trial, which I just brought up without you prompting me, but (laughs) we were going to get there, is we had 20 individuals walk around with our device and a blood meter. In our case, we used the Abbott Precision Extra blood ketone meter because it performed the best in our our validation studies and our quality control studies. So we had that blood meter and then our device. And for two weeks, they blew into our device and pricked their finger at the same time, five times a day. So these people are sitting down, these poor folks were sitting down, you know, with their blood meter five times a day and taking a measurement because we really wanted to also look at how people's ketones vary throughout a single day. You know, I mentioned that that historical data, most of it is kind of once a day measurements. So it was really serving two purposes. It was, you know, how do people's ketones, both blood and breath change during the course of a single day? And how do the individual measurements compare to each other? So does that make sense so far in terms of the study design? Yes, it does. It's interesting because like I had read some literature comparing like historical literature comparing blood to breath. What I had read was saying that actually was a, you know, pretty good that it lined up pretty well, but I hadn't considered what you just said that, you know, that's probably just measuring one time during the day, you know, for each other. And the importance would be, you know, how is it changing throughout the day and, you know, constantly. So yes, very valuable. Sure. 
Sure. And and for any one of those studies, the correlations will move around. So some of them have like in the 0.8s, or I think there may be one is even as high as 0.9. One of the ones I read was like 0.8 or 0.9, which I actually found really interesting. Right. So what I did to arrive at my 0.6 number is I actually did like a weighted average. And this is a little bit sloppy, but it's good enough for now. It's like a weighted average of, you know, how many data points were used to generate that correlation. Right. I, I would weigh each correlation number from the literature by the number of data points that was used to generate it. So if you if you had a, a study with a hundred data points, that correlation would get weighed more than a study with 10 data points. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So when I say, you know, 0.6, that's I'm talking about, you know, a, a weighted average. Gotcha. So let's talk about the results a little bit. So what what we found were, you know, when we did the multiple daily measurements we found that people's ketones actually vary a lot during the day. You know, I should mention that these folks that we had in the study were not diabetic. We had one diabetic, but they were not insulin dependent. But everybody else was kind of a more or less metabolically healthy individual who was just interested in the ketogenic diet, interested in fasting, mostly for lifestyle reasons. Maybe they were the biohacker types, so those types of folks. So we, you know, they all essentially knew what they were doing and knew how to elevate their ketones. And we didn't really provide any guidance on how to do that. We just kind of released them into the wild and said, try to get your ketones up and take all these measurements. So yeah, the first thing we found is, is quite a bit of variability, you know, even over the course of a day. So, you know, the average, I think, there's a histogram in our, our preprint, the paper that we're publishing, on this, but the variation is about 50% on average for your ketones over the course of just a single day. So we were able to really map out. And this is breath ketones? It's actually both. Both the blood and the breath came out to be about 50%. So when you did the test, you had them do both? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. We basically just, there's a measurement session where you would sit down and, you know, within a window of five minutes, take a breath measurement, take a blood measurement. So you can actually get the traces of your of blood ketones throughout the day and breath ketones throughout the day and just set those right next to each other and, and start to look at the patterns, which was super interesting. And there are a couple of those traces in the preprint that I mentioned that maybe we can we can link somehow. So that's the first thing is that there's quite a bit of variability both in blood and breath. The correlation that we found between the two, just a point-by-point point correlation, was similar to the literature. So I think ours was around 0.6 as well. In fact, I know it was. It was around 0.6 uh, for the point-by-point point correlation. But when you start to look at the traces next to each other, the blood and the breath, you notice this really interesting phenomenon where they're actually often offset from each other in time. So your blood ketones, let's say they're going to rise from, you know, 0.3 millimolar to one, you know, over the course of a couple hours, you'll see that happen in the blood. And then a little bit later, you'll see the exact same rise happen in the breath. So there's a little bit, there's often a delay between changes in blood and changes in breath. So if you imagine doing correlations between these, you know, you can imagine that that's going to affect your correlation, right? You know, you're comparing a, a blood point that has, you know, popped up you know, from baseline, but the breath hasn't risen yet. So those are going to look uncorrelated, right? When in fact, what's really going on there is it's just, it's going to rise and correlate later, but just not quite at the same time. So is that occurring because acetoacetate and BHB is being generated in the liver, put into the bloodstream, it's in the bloodstream, and then a little bit down the road, the acetoacetate is 
turning into acetone or is it not that simple? No, you're, you're right. You're thinking about it exactly the right way. So you can explain the delay with those processes exactly in the way that you mentioned. So if you imagine, you know, the acetoacetate getting converted into BHB in the liver, you know, you'd see BHB rise in your blood more than you would see breath acetone rise. Okay. Because the breath acetone comes from the acetoacetate. And what we're assuming is that all the acetoacetate or a lot of it has converted into BHB in the liver. Okay. So that's the original state of things. That's going to cause your BHB to rise, but not your breath acetone to rise. So as this production continues in the liver, eventually you're going to use up the redox potential in the, in the liver is going to change, or you're going to use up all the converting enzyme in your liver, and you're going to stop doing that conversion of acetoacetate to BHB because you've just run out of the, the elements that you need to do that conversion. So at that point, you're going to have more acetoacetate released into the blood than BHB, which is going to show up as more breath acetone as the acetoacetate degrades. So there are all these like interesting dynamics in terms of the conversion rates of the ketones into each other and the time it takes to do those conversions, the rate of those reactions, all those things conspire to give you this delay between changes in blood and changes in breath. Can I like retell the story again and see if I'm following? I just want to make sure I'm following. So from the liver can come, you know, BHB and acetoacetate, but probably in the beginning, there's more BHB coming out than acetoacetate. And then when you, you spoke about like the redox potential changing or the enzymatic processes being used, then maybe there's more acetoacetate coming out of the liver and not as much BHB. So when the acetone is formed and excreted in the breath, does that occur in the bloodstream or the liver? Yeah. So the best way to think about it is that the degradation of acetoacetate into acetone is happening, generally speaking, is happening in the blood. So think of breath acetone as just a proxy measurement for the acetoacetate that's in your blood, right? There's some percentage of the acetoacetate that's going to become acetone, and that's what we're going to measure. So just the easiest way when you're thinking through the three ketones as like a first order approximation and like simplification of the problem is just to assume that the breath acetone is a direct proxy for the acetoacetate. And actually, you know, something that that helps a lot is in the paper, which, you know, we can link in the show notes, there is a diagram of this, which makes it way easier to wrap your head around. So I think it's I think it's figure one in the paper, I want to say. Yeah, so figure one in the paper has all these processes outlined in graphical format. And it's just much easier to understand than trying to describe in words. You know, when, when you hear all of these molecule names thrown around and this is converting into this and degrading into this, it can be kind of a, you know, it can definitely twist you in knots a little bit mentally. So I do think it helps to, to get the graphical representation. So for listeners, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash ketones. I will put a link to that study there so you can look at that graph. So the last thing that we learned in the trial, you know, we mentioned the, the correlation, the point by point correlation between BHB and breath acetone being around 0.6. And that correlation being in large part due to this time shift and this time delay between the two ketones. So something that we can do is we can actually, instead of looking at the point by point correlation, we can look at the correlation between total ketone exposure during a single day. 
So this idea is actually borrowed from drug development, where they look at the clearing properties and the pharmacokinetics of a drug by essentially injecting the drug and then monitoring the concentration of that, whatever the molecule is, in your bloodstream over time. And they can kind of track you know, how quickly your body is able to clear the drug. So ketones are obviously not a drug. They're a natural molecule that occurs in your body, but we can do something similar. So we can, you know, we can look at measuring, you know, your ketones four, five, six, however many times per day, and then look at the area under the curve from that ketone trace to approximate, you know, the dose of ketones or the total amount of ketones that your body has seen that day. So it's really kind of a cumulative exposure metric. And because, you know, we mentioned earlier about the variability, because your ketones are changing quite a bit throughout the day, looking at this really captures all that variability and all that behavior in a single daily metric, the daily ketone exposure, or we call it the ketone score in the app. So when you compare that exposure, that daily exposure between blood and breath, the correlation is 0.83, so much higher. So what this means is that if you were to take five measurements per day with a blood meter, which we would suggest that you need to do to capture all the variability that we discussed earlier, that 50% variability, and then you were to take five measurements with a breath device, the cumulative result of those two are going to be very highly correlated. And so you're saying in the app, does it give you a score of that cumulative amount? Yes, it does. So that that amount is going to accumulate throughout the day. So each time you take a measurement, it's going to add a little bit to that score, that area under your curve, that ketone score. And at the end of your day, you can really get a sense of, again, you know, the exposure that your body's had to ketones that day, the total exposure. And it's going to take into account all that variability and, you know, how high or low your ketones were that day. So does that require a minimum amount of measures to guess that? Because if you only took like one measurement. Right. So we, yeah, we did this analysis with our clinical data. And what we found is the best trade-off between number of measurements, because we, you know, we don't want to, some people like to take 20 measurements, but we don't want to insist on that. So, you know, the minimum number to really get you reasonably close in terms of accuracy is three. So we really recommend about three measurements per day. The more you take, the more accurate that score is going to be. But you can get reasonably close with three measurements. So, you know, a morning, afternoon, and evening measurement. Did you guys ever do any tests with people taking in exogenous ketones like MCT oil? So MCT is interesting. So we, we've, we have actually done that. We've done that with the internal team and we've had some folks, some of our users do that too. And with MCT, you will see a spike in your breath acetone. Yeah, that's just the fact of it. If, you, if you're talking about exogenous ketones like exogenous BHB, you know, like a ketone salt or a ketone ester. So that's a little different. So we we have less experience with that. And because you're, you know, taking a a BHB ester, a BHB salt, typically, that's going to spike your BHB immediately. So you'll see that in your blood. The change in breath acetone is going to occur sometime later for the exact reasons that we've already discussed, right? These, you know, these processes that convert one ketone into another are going to take some time. So you probably will see a bump in your breath acetone sometime later. But as far as like the exogenous BHB, that's really going to spike your blood BHB specifically. Now, there are some research groups who are developing, you know, or have developed these diesters or, you know, acetoacetate exogenous ketones. 
We have not had anyone test those with a breath acetone device, but that's actually something we'd be really interested in is actually, you know, if you were to take exogenous acetoacetate, you would probably expect to see a faster spike in your breath acetone. Okay, that's fascinating. I'm just having a major epiphany right now because I know this is totally N of one, but I know for me, I've gone through periods of doing a very low carb, high MCT oil diet. And I always found that when I would bring in carbs, I would immediately start, at least intuitively seem to excrete ketones through my breath. And I wonder if that was because it was like switching over from, you know, using the acetoacetate as potentially fuel in the cells and then switching it over to excrete it as acetone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So those, those types of experiments, you know, we have users write into us all the time with those types of experiments and it's been so fun to kind of learn along with our users because, you know, we'll sometimes sit there and, you know, develop a little bit of a back and forth and be like, I wonder if this is what's going on or what, you know, so it's really kind of this communal learning experiment that we're all going through. And that part has been a lot of fun. So fascinating. I feel like I'm going to have a game day experimenting, especially like the MCT oil and, and everything. Random question. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I had read that acetone, which we're measuring in the breath, but which we just said we could sort of see it as like a gauge of acetoacetate, but that acetone itself is not used as a fuel. Correct. So would that mean if somebody for some reason, based on their enzymatic processes, if they're generating more acetoacetate and less BHB. And I don't know like how big the variance is between individuals, but if that's the case, would they possibly be the type that wouldn't as easily gain weight on a ketogenic diet because more of the ketones are more likely to be excreted rather than used as fuel? I don't know if you can make any like connections or associations there, but I was just wondering between like weight gain and the ability to turn ketones into fuel versus just excreting them? Yeah, I'm actually not sure about that. I will say that, you know, we discussed before that once your body becomes adapted, you know, it stops or at least decreases the amount of, of ketones that it's excreting in the urine. So, you know, if you've been at it for a while, then your body essentially figures out, it kind of like titrates the the amount of ketones like it's producing versus it's using and kind of gets itself into a, a a more calibrated state than when you first start. I'm not sure what the implications would be for weight gain though. What sparked me to think about that was I was actually listening to a a Peter Atia podcast episode recently. And for listeners, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And they actually were talking about you guys very favorably. They were talking about measuring ketones and you know, all the implications and the difference between measuring blood versus breath. And and they, they were saying, I was, <laughs> I was really happy because I knew I was bringing you guys on and I was listening to it and they started talking about you. And I was like, oh, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope we're in favor here with I this company because well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really respect Peter Atia. And they were actually very much in support of Biosense. And they were saying that it did tend to correlate pretty well to measuring blood ketones and that it you know, was way less invasive so that it was very, very practical to use it compared to people who don't want to be you know, pricking themselves every day. But something that was really, really interesting, that I don't remember who was being interviewed, but I will put a link to it in the show notes. But one of the things that they mentioned was that, I think there was like three people on the interview, but one of the guys was saying that breath acetone 
was actually more likely to come from body fat. Do you have any idea why that might be? Now I'm just trying to think about why that might be. You know, I I don't. But if you're citing folks on that show, you're probably on reasonably solid ground. But I would love to know, along with your users, if you can find a reference to that and post it, I would love to to listen to that. I'll circle back with more information. Yeah, the notes I'd taken from it was that they had found that breath acetone was more likely to come from body fat. They said they found that exercise tended to lower breath acetone and BHB. But then after exercise, like after like a period of rest, the breath acetone started to go up again. Yeah. So there are actually, you know, there are a couple different reasons why we see that. So we also see that you get this temporary dip a lot of the time. And this is particularly the case when your ketones are elevated before you exercise. So if you go into exercise and your, your ketones are up after you exercise, they dip a little bit and then they shoot back up. And there are a couple different reasons why this is probably happening. Uh, the first is that when your ketones are elevated in the first place, that means your body's using them you know, for fuel, right? They're using them as this metabolic substrate. So part of what happens during exercise is you're actually just using the ketones that are in your body. So they drop a little bit. The other reason is because, you know, when you exercise that, you know, you release stress hormones, which tend to cause a temporary spike in your blood glucose as well. So you get this little spike in blood glucose, which, you know, type one diabetics are very familiar with, you know, if they, if they like to exercise and that little spike in blood glucose can also downregulate your ketone production temporarily. So it's probably a combination of both of those uh, to varying degrees. But yeah, that, that pattern of like immediate dip after exercise and then, you know, raising back up is something that, that we see pretty frequently. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. 
On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash melanieavalon and use the coupon code melanieavalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash melanieavalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. 
You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase Asana, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Okay, actually, you just tapped into two huge things I wanted to jump into. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did want to circle back. I mentioned the Lumen device at the beginning because I did recently have the founders of Lumen on the show, and they also have a breath device for listeners who aren't familiar. Their device, it doesn't measure ketones at all. It actually measures the ratio of oxygen to carbon dioxide in the breath to evaluate if you are generating energy from glucose or carbs compared to generating energy from fat. So it's it's not measuring ketones. I found it like super, I mean, I found it really, really cool and very, very valuable. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit, because I'm all about having as many tools in the toolbox, you know, <laughs> that you can have and learning as much as you can about yourself and what works for you. So say, for example, a person does have a Lumen device and they're measuring their breath to see if they're in quote carb or fat burning mode. If they have a Biosense device and they're measuring their ketones. Is there a correlation there? So, like, is it most likely that when they're measuring, because Lumen, the way it measures is it measures one to five for fat to carb burning. And it's not actually measuring like, like the device is not measuring one, two, three, four, five. They said their data is actually much more expansive than that, but that's how they chose to qualify it through the software. But would it be reasonable to state that if a person is measuring, quote, fat burning on the lumen, that they're probably going to be measuring ketones on the biosense. And then beyond that, say they're measuring like a one fat burning on the lumen, is it most likely with the biosense that they might measure, you know, much more nuanced or much more larger range of, quote, fat burning because there's a range of ketone burning? I don't know if I asked that right. No. Yeah, you did. That's great. That's great. So many of my listeners have lumens now, so they're probably going to be like, why would I want to measure ketones if I know that I'm fat burning? What would be the value in actually being able to measure both? Yeah, so the lumen device is measuring a variant or an approximation of respiratory exchange ratio, which, like you said, is the the ratio of inhaled O2 to exhaled CO2. And that can give you an indication of, you know, if your body is... Is, is burning all carbs or if it's kind of starting to, to flip over into a fat burning state. There is a study that actually directly compared the two measurements. And that's another study that we can toss in the show notes too, so that people can look at that. And essentially what you notice is that as you know, the respiratory figure, the respiratory exchange increases compared to breath acetone, pretty quickly it flattens out. And what that means is that, you know, I'm thinking of a plot of you know, this respiratory exchange ratio to a respiratory quotient to uh, breath acetone. So what that means is that as breath acetone continues to change and increase, the respiratory exchange ratio stops changing. It just flattens out and becomes constant. So the way that that translates into ranges, you know, from their device to our device is the full range of their device fits in about the first three units of our device. So I actually haven't said anything about units. 
but our device measures breath acetone in units called ACEs. And, you know, we can talk about exactly where those come from in a minute, but we have a, a range of zero to 40 in increments of one. So the types of measurements that you get is like a five or a 13 or a 33, right? So you can get 40 different measurements on our device that tell you how many ketones you have. If you're looking at the full range of Lumen, that fits in about the zero to three range of our device. So that's sort of the very, very low fat burning range. So if you are, you know, a three on our device is like very slightly elevated ketones. Like that's the first unit that we say is like ever so slightly elevated over your baseline. Your baseline ketone level on our device is about zero to two. So even if you're eating high carbs, you're going to be somewhere between zero and two just because you have some background rate of ketone production, even when you're eating a lot of carbs. The first unit that's like a little bit, a little bit elevated is a three. And that's kind of the top range of the lumen. Okay. So some clarifications here, just because this will be very specific to my audience specifically. I like drew a little, little graph out when you're making those numbers. If a listener is measuring their like the carb versus the fat burning on the lumen. Because you were saying that actually like the zero to three in the biosense, so that would actually correlate to the carb burning on the lumen or would that zero to three probably, I mean, I know it's hard to know because you don't have their device and you don't know what the actual measurements are, but would it be more likely that that zero to three is actually still in like the fat burning of the lumen? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure how their units work, but... I think that the highest fat burning state on their device is a one. It actually goes in the reverse order. Yeah, they call one and two fat burning. Three, they call carb fat. Four is carb, five is carb. Got it. So the highest fat burning state for them is like equivalent of a three on our device, which is like very, very low levels of fat burn. And in fact, a three on our device, you actually haven't transitioned into what's traditionally thought of as ketosis. So you haven't, you know, you may be starting to burn fat, right? Which is, I think what that device is telling you, but you haven't transitioned into ketosis where you're deriving the majority of your energy from fatty acids and ketones. The highest range of fat burning on that device stops before you enter ketosis, according to our device. Okay. Although actually, most likely if a person's in ketosis, like it it would plateau at one for lumen. Exactly. Exactly. So for a listener, if you had both devices, what it sounds like is, you know, say you're experimenting with, you know, different dietary choices, you know, cycling between ketosis, fat burning, carb burning, the Lumen device would be telling you, when are you switching into fat burning? When are you switching back into carb burning? Like, what does that sort of look like on that timeline? But then when you're actually in the fat burning state and you're wanting to get the nuances and the really deep details of your ketones in the ketogenic state, now it's like you're expanding that fat burning state 40 more units to see the, the level of variance in that fat burning state as to how it pertains to ketones. Yeah, I think that's pretty that's pretty accurate. So, you know, the other reason why it's interesting, it's not just interesting to track the transition into ketosis, because, you know, we were talking about that earlier and kind of how that can be a little bit of a bummer. Above three, you're going to start to see that transition into ketosis. Just for reference, that transition occurs around a five on our device. So a little bit higher state of fat burning. But also, if you're interested in the other ancillary effects of having ketones in your body, for example, the anti-inflammatory effects, those signaling effects tend to kick on a little bit higher. 
So around, I think it's around a 10 on our device. So one millimolar BHB or a 10 on our device is around where you start to get those signaling benefits. So if you're doing a fast and you're trying to get your ketones elevated a little bit more than just transitioning into ketosis and try to get them elevated above that, our device is really going to tell you, you know, with a high level of granularity, again, 40 units. And I should also mention that the reason we're able to provide that level of granularity again, goes back to this end of breath sampling that we're doing. And again, no one else is doing this this sampling method on a breath device, but it really does enable that highly accurate, highly precise determination of the concentration of gas in your breath and allows us to be able to make statements like you're a 31 instead of a 28, right? That's a very precise difference that we're resolving there. Do you find people practicing like a one meal a day type situation, eating a lot of carbs in their eating window? Do they tend to enter a ketogenic state in the next day's fast or does it vary wildly or like, do some people actually get deep into ketosis or does that actually take like a lot of effort to get deeper and deeper? It really depends on what you're eating on your off meals. So, and you've already put your finger on that in your question, right? So, you know, our founder likes to tell a story of, you know, one of his early testers of a prototype who would do, you know, fasting, you know, during, during the day for religious reasons, but then at night would eat a bunch of rice, you know, would just eat tons of rice with his, with his meal, but then would fast from then until the next dinner. Right. And that person saw no ketones, right. Because they had built up their muscle glycogen store so much with all the rice that they were eating. Because this is actually another point that we, we haven't talked about yet, but you have to remember that before you start burning fat for fuel, you have to burn through your glycogen first. And there's, you know, your muscle glycogen, uh, you know, depending on how big you are, but, it, you know, there's quite a, quite a lot of it and it can provide, you know, energy for you for, you know, a day or so. I can speak for myself with my own experiments. You know, I did like a super low calorie experiment for a few days just to see if I could get myself into ketosis by restricting calories. So I didn't even pay attention to carbs. I just did a low calorie thing. And I did get into ketosis. I got into pretty good ketosis, but it took me, you know, a couple of days because that first day I was really churning through my glycogen. And so I hadn't started to tap into my fat yet. So, you know, to answer your question, depending on what you're eating on that meal before the fast, that's really going to determine you know, how high your ketones get during the fast. But that's another reason why it's important to measure, right? Because if you're just doing time-based fasting and you're saying, I'm going to fast for 12 hours or 16 hours or 24 hours, you know, that's great. That's great as like a, you know, a general guideline, but you don't really know what's going on in your body unless you're measuring. And what's going on in your body is going to depend a lot on what you do outside of the fast. This is a question that, that haunts me literally every single day. (laughs) I wish I was joking. So liver glycogen, is that a hard, a hard stop on ketosis? Like, does it pretty much have to be depleted for ketosis to start? I saw this on your questionnaire and I don't know the answer to that. Because I can't find the answer. I Google it like every day. (laughs) Yeah, I'm totally not the person to ask. Okay. If you find somebody who knows the answer, let me know. The reason I'm asking is because people say it all the time. They're like, once you deplete liver glycogen is when ketosis starts. But I can't find any studies that like talk about it, really. My understanding of what happens, let's say you're just fasting and you cut, uh, you know, you cut out all food, 
right? So during the beginning of that, I mean, the first thing you're going to do is burn through the glucose that's in your bloodstream from the last meal that you ate, right? You're going to metabolize that. Then you're going to tap into your muscle glycogen stores and you're going to use that. I feel like the muscle glycogen, isn't it spared though? I feel like it's not really tapped into. So what I've seen is that, you know, when I did the the low calorie experiment that I just mentioned, that first day I didn't have ketones, but I lost like, I lost weight, like I lost a couple of pounds and some of that was water, but I think some of that also was glycogen from muscle. And like I said, I'm a big person. So I assume that to, to lose enough, it would have to be my muscle glycogen. Yeah. I'm just, I'm fascinated by, I'm fascinated by glycogen. I want to have a glycogen episode. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because interpreting ketone data, like when we get questions about what is going on with my ketones, more often than not, the answer involves glycogen. So you have good intuition for it as being a a super important element in trying to understand metabolism. So, you know, we've had somebody say, you know, I did a 12 hour fast and I'm not in ketosis yet. And I exercise too. I did a 12 hour fast and I went on a long bike ride and I'm still not in ketosis. And the answer is that they were still burying through their glycogen, right? So after the exercise, you know, they would refeed and then they would refill their glycogen even more and they would just never see ketones. So what they started to do was do the fast, exercise, and then continue the fast. And then they would see their ketones go up. Gotcha. Two points to what you just said. Like, I think the reason I'm fascinated by it is for me historically, like for the longest time I followed a low carb diet with fasting. Yes, I lost weight. But once I actually switched to a high carb, low fat diet with fasting, so I was eating massive amounts of fruit (laughs) at night. So I was definitely filling up liver glycogen completely, probably every single night. I actually started losing more weight. And so my, the haunting question I had was, okay, while fasting, was I ever entering into ketosis or was I running off of liver glycogen? And I don't know. I'm like, I'm just very confused as to how like (laughs) the ketogenic process, how it is, you know, how much does glycogen affect it? Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. And then like the last thing was a lot of people have been using the Lumen device and they've been reporting back that there'll be like 25, 26, 27 hours into a fast and it's showing them at like a four, like car burning. And now I'm like, you probably, this would be like really good time to have a biosense device to see what's really going on as far as ketosis with all of that. Yeah. And I should also mention that, you know, with respect to research, you know, that's another thing that our company, Readout Health, is really interested in is research and supporting research activities. And, you know, we're involved in several clinical trials at a couple different academic institutions and have one planned in industry as well. And we're super interested in exploring some of these questions, right? You have to remember that, you know, until now, doing, you know, semi continuous ketone measurements reliably was just not possible. So you can start to imagine all kinds of interesting ideas for experiments and clinical research that we can do to try to answer questions like this. So, you know, we're not just, I mean, of course, you know, we're, we're a company who's selling a device, but we have a deep interest in the scientific work that's going on in this space and how we might be able to support it. I love this so much. And because I mean, I personally have been a little bit, like I said, hesitant about measuring the breath. But when I spoke to you guys, I was so excited by all of the research and the science you were doing. And then hearing, you know, talked about it like the Peter Tia podcast and doing more research. I just think this is so valuable for people. And I think this might actually be the key for me personally 
to figuring out, because I, I feel like recently I haven't been able to really tap into a ketogenic diet despite everything. Like something's just not clicking. I feel like this might be a game changer. Like, because I'm going to be able to like really figure out what's happening to me as far as ketosis goes. Sure. And that's another reason why the, you know, the resolution, the high resolution that we have is so valuable for experimentation, right? You know, something that we haven't touched on yet is the importance of, you know, feedback when you're trying to make a dietary or lifestyle change, right? You know, I make a decision and then I get the feedback, you know, very quickly after that decision, you know, an hour or two after, right? So that's a much quicker cycle than a weight scale, for example, which first of all is going to fluctuate all over the place. And second of all, you know, you can only really do once a day, you know, once a day. And even then that's probably too frequent. But the idea of having that tight connection between the choices you're making and the outcome that you get is so important for, for understanding how your body is working and charting a path forward with the choices that you're making. And the high resolution of our device allows you to say, oh, that meal dropped me from a 25 to a 19, right? So I, I have a sense now, a very precise idea of the effect of that decision on my metabolism. Okay, I am loving this so much because you guys sent me the device. Thank you so much. And I actually hadn't tried it yet because I wanted to have this conversation. And now I'm so excited to like get it open and like see what I can learn. Really quick question. I know we're running out of time. Does it sync up with an app? We have a free app that you know that you can download on the App Store, Google or iOS. And the data syncs over to the app via Bluetooth. So, you know, the device can actually be used as another advantage of our device. It can be used as a standalone device because there's actually a screen on the device that tells you what your number is. And the device can also store, you know, up to 100 measurements, you know, on its onboard memory. So the founders were really, it was really important to them to kind of remove as many barriers as possible. And they really didn't want to be in a situation where you always had to have a cell signal where you always had to have the device in one hand and your phone in the other hand to take a measurement. So that's that's why the the onboard device screen is there and why it's so important to us. But at the same time, you can, whenever you want, open up the app and then just sync your data over. So you don't have to do it after every measurement. You can, of course, if you want to. But if you know you want to take a whole day's worth of measurements, take five five measurements and then go home and sync to the app at the end of the day, you can. So the app has the ability to track all these trends on, you know, of course, a daily basis, on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, and you can kind of really start to see those trends. Something that we're about to release during the month of July that we're really excited about is the ability to add annotations and notes into your graph. So if you want to say, you know, I had a meal here or I, you know, went for a jog here, and then you can see those notes and annotations show up along with your ketones. And you can really then start to draw that connection between what you're doing and the patterns that you're seeing in your ketones. So that's not in the app right now, but we expect that that will be out sometime this month. So we're super excited about that. Awesome. This is so incredible. Yeah. I think my listeners, particularly since a lot of them are fasters, a lot of them play around with keto diets are going to find so much value in finding out how they're responding to keto diets, how they're responding to fasting. Just, this is just absolutely wonderful. So for listeners, if you would like to get your own Biosense device, thank you. You guys do have a wonderful offer for our listeners. You can go to mybiosense.com. And if you use the coupon code Avalon20, you will actually get $20 off the device. 
So that is incredible. I'll put that information in the show notes. And thank you so much, Trey. This has been absolutely incredible. This is the last question, I swear. I know we're out of time, but the last question I ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just because I've come to realize how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, that's a great question. I actually took a vacation last weekend out to sunny California, and it was the first vacation that I had taken in almost a year. And I was so grateful to sit on the beach and just relax for a few days. (laughs) What part did you go to? San Diego. Oh, Oh, I love San Diego. I do too. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I learned so much. Like, This was just absolutely amazing. I'm so excited to start using the Biosense device. And I know my audience is going to love it as well. So thank you. We'll have to, maybe we can bring you back for a part two after you guys have done more research because I could keep talking to you for like hours. So this has been great. Anytime. I'd love to come back. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.